It's all about that dichotomy, though. It's all about this accent of somebody kind of fudging his wife's kidnapping and just, uh, oh, my God, this can happen anyway. You know, the real true story, this is, this can happen anyway. Yeah, yeah. How they came up, do you know how they came up with Minnesota no. as a location? Uh, well, I mean, they're, they're from there. Uh, oh. So that's uh, that's part of it, and I think they, they, I think they did feel that it hadn't been seen on screen before. But I think as well, uh, I think when they started conceiving of some of these plot ideas, they started to realize this is this is funnier and more interesting if it's said in one of these accents. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Two fat ladies. It's fifty-eight. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Flix Watcher Podcast. We're joined today by Ned. Hello. And Tom. Hello there. And as always, Helen. Hello. And we're going to be talking about the Coen Brothers classic Fargo. Remember, please visit us online at flixwatcher.tv. Come to our Twitter account, which is Flix, at flixwatcherpod, and go to iTunes, subscribe, and review. As always, films reviewed in this podcast were available to stream on Netflix UK at the time of recording. There may be bad language, and there may be spoilers. You have been warned. Hello and welcome to this episode of Flix Watcher Podcast. Today, me and Kobe are joined by Ned and Tom. If you would like to say hello to our listeners and tell them a little bit about the podcast they might be able to find you on. Hi, uh, I'm Ned Sedgwick. I am on a couple of podcasts. I do a podcast called Global Pillage, in which we kind of discuss the foibles of humankind with a diverse bunch of comedians. And I also do a podcast with the BBC, uh, called Grown Up Land, which is about trying and failing at being an adult. How do you how do you fail at being an adult? Oh, I do it on a nearly nearly daily basis. I live at home. Um, you mean with your parents? Yeah, live no, at home no. with my parents. I don't live that's, at home. That's a Matthew McConaughey film, isn't it? Failure to launch. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like that, except without. The looks or the happy ending so far, but fingers crossed. <laughs> um, I I mean, I was saying earlier, my main source of income is podcasting, which is something that didn't even exist 10 years ago and seems kind of entirely designed for millennials. Um, I absolutely love it, though. And I do go to a lot of indie discos kind of lying to myself about how indie never died. Um, well, you live in Camden, so... I can't avoid them. I mean, I'd try and go on these trendy house nights, but I physically cannot avoid listening to The Strokes and Arctic Monkeys all night, every night. And what about yourself, Tom? Well, I am the producer of Global Pillage and the executive producer of Grown Up Land, so I think that that means I'm your <laughs> boss. Yes, it's so always... So this should be a relaxing evening, for you at any On rate. your best behaviour. Yeah. Yes, tell me what you think about Fargo, and oh, mysteriously. Uh... Uh, and then I've also recently launched a film podcast called Best Pick, which is me, Jessica Regan and John Dorney, so we're all writers and actors of various kinds, and we've taken the 90 films which have so far won Best Picture at the Academy Awards, put yep. them in a hat, and for each episode we take one out at random we talk about it we watch it we review it and then at the end of the episode we pick out the episode for next week so that is on episode six at the moment six down 84 to go so what have you what have you picked out the hat so far so far we've seen uh, the sting mm. we've seen all quiet on the western front we've seen gladiator Ooh. nobody enjoyed that <laughs> We've oh, seen. Really? Does that not? Does that not? Does Imagine not, it's not very. Not it's not age well, is it? No, yeah. it's not age well at all. Uh, from here to eternity. Yeah. And, as parodied in air, Airplane. Uh, as parodied in Everywhere. countless movies, yeah. exactly. But it's, it's fascinating how one. It's like the Seven Year Itch is another example. How one shot has become much more iconic than the rest of the film. Uh, a lot of people would recognise that shot. Maybe one person in ten, if you stop them on the street, which might be an amusing thing to do later, could tell you what film that's from, or even who those actors are. Mm. I think um, my, I have a knowledge of, uh, who's that? Well, I say I have a knowledge of him. A battleship, the film Battleship Potemkin. Yes. I've known about since I was about eight, because in Naked Gun 33 and a third, the opening shots of the, is of the Odessa Steps, mm. which is actually from um, that film about the Prohibition. Um, it's from Battleship Potemkin. No, but then it was copied again. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, oh, yes, that's right. Yes, it's, it's riffed on in the Untouchables. Yeah, so it was riffed on in the Untouchables. And my mother always said, well, of course, that's from Battleship Potemkin. 
which is a really good film if anyone ever has kind of a bit of time on their hands and wants to watch a long black and white Ukrainian... You sold it very well. Uh, <laughs> and are you a Sergei Eisenstein completist, Ned? Or have um, you only watched Battleship Potemkin? I... I love Eisenstein. <laughs> <laughs> to my knowledge, I mean, I've seen a, I've seen Battleship Potemkin and I've seen Naked Gun, Thirty Three and a Third, which I assume he directed as well. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yes, a later uh, work. And what is there any particular film you're looking forward to watching, or are there any blind spots that in there that you hoping you're looking forward There's to? There's a few. Out? This uh, we we just took this out of the hat, uh, so we haven't watched it yet. But uh, we just got Grand Hotel. Which Grand I've never seen. You're drawing 19, a blank. That 1932. Greta Garbo is the one film which okay. Greta Garbo said I want to be alone. Right. Uh, and I. That's basically all I know about it. Big ensemble cast. 1932. I want to be alone. Here ends what I know. Yeah. So that would be really interesting. Is it a talkie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Every best picture winner, apart from the first one, Wings, is a talkie, depending on how you classify the artist. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. It's quite a good adventure-free film, I think. Yeah. And doing it slightly out of order as well. Exactly, yeah, Throw up some surprises. Around. Yeah, yeah. We had 1999 and 2000 uh, as, as years, not quite consecutively. And it's fascinating what a good year, especially for American film, 1999 is. So what was 1999? What a terrible year 2000 is. <laughs> 1999 is the... Uh, uh, oh, I'm afraid to read this in my own podcast, to be sure about this, but it was things like... Um, uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, uh, the Iron Giant, mm. uh, and I, I was—it was such a good year. I was able to go through other films released that year and create a very plausible list of Best Picture nominees, none of which were actually nominated. Yeah. Uh, Magnolia, I think, is 1999. Oh, Thomas Anderson film. That's a brilliant film. I would say that might be the best film of the nineties. Or possibly the film we're going to be reviewing yeah. today. Be. Yes. <laughs> so we're talking about Fargo. Uh, Tom, you chose Fargo. Can you tell us why you Tom, chose? Tom, Tom sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm looking at I'm looking at Ned and calling him Tom. I apologise. <laughs> well, uh, neither of you actually chose yeah. it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we should. For full disclosure, we just have Bishop K. Ali, and she's stuck in Uxbridge, which is uh, nowhere near where we are. No. Yes. Um, Tom very kindly ran across and we will invite you again for a Bless full you, episode, you, full double episode where you get to choose your film. It's great you've watched Fargo, but Ned, you've quote unquote so chosen choice. Fargo. So can you tell us why you chose it and what happens in the in the film? I chose it because I recently watched the first two series of the Fargo TV series, which is on Netflix. And I think it might be the first series outside of a wire might be my favorite television ever. I, I think it is uh, scary and funny and genius. Mm. And I remember watching Fargo when I was about 15 and enjoying it, thinking it was a great kind of thrillery film and it was kind of cool. And I didn't really, when people talk about it as one of the greats, I don't think I quite got, I loved it, but I didn't, I, it was it was an exciting thriller. It was a slightly creepy, uh, slightly kind of, uh, disturbing film. It was nominated way. for a, a fair few awards that year, the year it came out, didn't it? Yeah, it, it, it won a few as well. It won a few. Um, and as for a synopsis, should I give a synopsis mm. now? I mean, it's kind of hard to make a synopsis out of in some ways, but then in other ways, it's a very, very simple film. And it's a simpler film than I remember it. It is about someone paying people to kidnap his wife and a police officer trying to find out what happens. Because because they because the kidnapping goes a bit wrong in some ways, yeah. so they leave a bit of evidence, and that's basically it. Just it's, DNA everywhere. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> uh, that's basically it, isn't it? The, yeah. But I never thought think of it like that. I I think of it as being this kind of weird atmospheric uh, film with loads of non sequiturs, which it is, um, and I think it. I think I remembered it as being Frances McDormand's film. I forgot she doesn't turn up until the 34th minute of the film. And the film is only an hour and a half. Mm. So for a third of the film, you're not even introduced to her, which is crazy. So it's like 34 minutes of what would be set up, I guess. Like waiting for Columbo to turn up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know what's happened already. Columbo's just going to... Yeah. Close out the close out the story. Actually, the, the whole Minnesota nice thing—it's a more apt analogy, I think, than I realised when I, I said it. The whole Minnesota nice thing, mm. especially Minnesota. coming Minnesota, especially <laughs> when it comes from Francis McDormand, it's similar. It's there's this there's charming, 
uh, very benign, slightly bumbling exterior, which betrays a really sharp forensic brain. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, I think what Ned's talking about is it's one of the questions of the film because it's, it's wearing the clothes of a crime thriller, but really it is about what it is to be nice, what it is to be Minnesota nice. Uh, the fact that in, certainly if you're William H. Macy's character, nice guys often finish last. And then the fact that the people who speak with these charming accents are also capable of uh, brutal mm. slayings and executions for, for very little provocation. Would you say, what's William H. Macy's character called? I don't remember. Uh, Jerry Lundegaard. Jerry Lundegaard. Um, is he nice though? He's well, not, this is it. Yeah. He, he seems like the nicest guy. He seems sweet and lovable mm. and affecting. And uh, life has dealt him a poor hand. And the early part of the movie is about not just misfortune, but indignity being heaped upon him. He mm. hatches this idea for this great scheme. And his father-in-law just takes it away from him yeah. without apology. And so it's important that you empathize with him while at the same time being aware what he's doing is morally bankrupt. And it doesn't matter how many times he says no one's going to get hurt, this was supposed to be a no rough stuff type deal. Mm. This is a terrible, terrible thing to do. And so I remember when I first saw it being incredibly struck by how carelessly his wife is killed. It's, it's like a, it, 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 she doesn't even register as human mm. to these two men. And he did that. He made that happen. And that's the whole, what the whole film is about, the conflict between that manner and these brutal actions. So these kidnappers being, uh, well, the people of Jerry Lindgarden. It's Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare, yeah. Yeah. The, see, they just... <laughs> this is fantastic knowledge. <laughs> I knew Steve Buscemi. I knew Steve Buscemi. <laughs> but nobody um, knows how to pronounce his surname. But everyone, I mean... Something that's presented, and I think this is what the first series of the TV programme Fargo is about, and I don't I don't want to give any spoilers away because I do want anyone... Spoiler who, film and not the series. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want anyone who hasn't seen it to go and watch it because I think it's great. And I'll get on to some of the conflict I have having seen it and then re-watching Fargo. But um, they, the, it's all about that there are basically predators and there are basically, hum you know, there are humans and there are predators... And it's quite, I think William H. Macy's character is one of the only characters who's not one of the two. Mm. Maybe the father-in-law, who again, I forgot what a brilliant character and actor and performance that is. Mm. But the father-in-law, um, what's his name? I've got it written down somewhere. Um, oh, maybe I don't. Anyway, oh, I can look it up, I'm sure. Uh, but I forgot, he just doesn't, he he just goes, oh, it's too much money. And he has to be convinced by his kind of advisor. So too much money. And William H. Macy. For the ransom. <clears throat> too much money for the ransom. ransom. his yeah. daughter. He doesn't care. Which kind of plays out again in recent films, uh, such as All the Money in the World. Oh, yes. Which yeah, came yeah. out recently in the, uh, the TV show Trust, which is based on the um, the Getty conspiracy. Where well, it's, it's, it's of course, Fargo is based on true events. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which someone I know believe that completely and i was like yeah but it's not really and well they, it could it could well be it's not no but i mean if i know it's not but the story there are stranger than fiction they stories. were convinced yeah, yeah. they were no. like but it's based on a true story well william, a, william h macy thought it was until he he, he, he really? spoke to the cohen's and was like i just want to read the case study from this i want to get i want to understand this a bit more and they were like oh yeah that's this a lie <laughs> this is all fiction <laughs> this this first I, by the way i love that first line and I love it when it comes up in on the TV show mm. um, every single time. I can't remember where it is off the top of my head, but I just love you know the the um, for for the sake of uh, this is this is everything you see is true story yeah something like that to, to then, honor the to honor the dead the survivors' names have been changed something like that yeah, yeah. yeah. but all other actions have remained the yeah. same yeah. everything else remained the same. Well, I think Tom uh, Deborah um, host of. Guilty feminist and global pillage. I have met her. Uh, and your wife. Uh, <laughs> That's how you've I met think her. She, I remember mum telling me a story that, sorry, I remember my mother, who's very good friends with Deborah, telling me a story about 10 years after Fargo came coming out that she had to calm Deborah down afterwards and well, say. If we've got time for this, uh, Fargo also has a special place in my heart because Deborah and I only just started going out. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a thing which happened, I think, for a couple of years in the UK around this time. What year is Fargo? Is it 96? Uh, so I think it was probably 96 or 97. There was some kind of thing called National Cinema Day. Right. And on National Cinema Day, all tickets for all films in all cinemas were one pound. 
in order to try and get people to go to the cinema. And what I realised, presumably other people did as well, but not very many, was the cinemas which had participated in this, all they'd done was change the prices for those days, for that day's showings to a pound. They made no other changes to their systems. And what that meant was you could still, in those days, ring up and book tickets, even though they were only a pound. So I booked us five films <laughs> to go and see that day. Uh, and we made a whole day of it. Nice. And Fargo was, I think, the fourth. I think it was the penultimate one we saw. what else is on that list? Uh, James and the Giant Peach. Okay. Remember it fondly. Uh, Sense and Sensibility. Mm. Mm. Secrets and Lies. Oh. Mm. And it may be we, we, we didn't get to the fifth in the end. I can't remember what it was now. Definitely those four. I think, Not I think after Fargo, yeah. you yeah. kind of, you're like, well, we've done the best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I remember Deborah just genuinely being affected by that, which I, I'm sure is exactly the reason why that's, that quote is there. I'm, thought, I'm sure that's exactly what it's intended to do. Mm. What a good movie will do generally is try to put you in the, the shoes of the protagonists. But the Coen brothers technique often is slightly distancing, a little bit like Kubrick. Uh, they, they don't, involve you in the action the way that, say, Spielberg does. And so this may have been a counter to that. This is going to be shot in this rather clinical way. You're going to be distracted by these funny accents. You're going to have people, like even even Marge, uh, who don't always react with as much warmth and empathy as you might expect, who can survey the scene of this double murder at the beginning yeah. and treat it very calmly and very professionally. She keeps and her... And she's heavily pregnant. This she's heavily pregnant, well. yes. Yeah, so you, you first see her throwing up at the beginning you think it's because of the, the, the horror of the scene that she's witnessing mm. and it's just morning sickness. It's a yeah. lovely, little, lovely little faint. But she saves all her empathy for her husband. She doesn't, she doesn't bring it to work. And so to counter that, if you keep reminding yourself, oh, this is true, this really happened, and then imagine uh, the, how terrified... Uh, Jerry's wife must have been. Sure. Uh, then you can't help but get involved. I'm sure that's the reason why they did it. So the, the, the opening text is, this is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. And I, I, I do love that. Um, and when it, I love the way they play it on the TV show as well. Obviously the, yeah. the date and the location has changed, but uh, Helen, what are your thoughts on, on Fargo? Oh, I love it. Um... I think it's brilliant. I probably think it's their best film. Um, more so than no, well, Karen. I want to. Yeah, no, I. I brothers films later. I, I do. I think it's their their best work, and I think. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've seen it. Quite a lot, but you you just get so much out of it each time you watch it, and each time's kind of a little bit of a different experience. Because mm. once you've got past the the not true story and kind of the horror, it's really really funny as well. It's hilarious. It's. And it's really bizarre as well. And the cast's great and just you know, the, the way it's directed as well, the snowy landscapes, the blood, it's it's brilliant. This is a Roger Deakins film. So now an Oscar winner. Yeah, now Oscar Finally. winner. Yeah. Yep. So you know, obviously he's he's outstanding. He's he's done he's done a lot of work with the Coen brothers and this is I think one of the first things one of the first things he shot with them. It looks Amazing. It's it is it is. Ama I rewatching it as well. It's just n noticing so many things. It's so white, yeah. and that it's so and the colours are very dull. And at first, I thought that might be because it's kind of nineties cameras it was filmed on. But no, it is just grey in the grey white in the cities, and then just really white. And I th there are so many cars in it. Cars are such a. I'm not intelligent enough to work out why because it's a Coen Brothers film. And but e there's a scene where. William H. Macy's trying to convince uh, his father-in-law and the business associate to give her money over. And it's in a cafe and behind them, there's just a freeway. Mm. And my eyes were just drawn to this freeway. Mm. And I, I don't know why it really kind of affected me. I couldn't work out. There's something quite inscrutable about it. Um, somebody might've read something or, or know why this was done. But I mean, did anyone else notice that? The kind of feeling, really, not of apart from the car part, you know. I mean, now you say it because he, obviously uh, Jerry works is a car salesman. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Oh god. And and the car was stole. He he stole the car off his lot. That a lot of the driver for the stories that he stole yeah, his own company's car off the lot to then um, use that for with its dealer plates. Yeah. Yes, yeah. dealer plates. I mean, that's that's Marge's first moment of kind of. Um, where you see that she's yes. not this slightly bumbling 
you know, silly, village cop, sure. yeah. yeah, simple in the sense of just you know a kind of small town cop, yeah. yeah. Um, but something I will say, actually, I'll let you talk about favorite favorite Cohen Brothers films. Oh well, no, I was just going to say one of my favorite moments in in it, which I, the only note I wrote down was about the three cent stamp. So basically, her husband is um, entered his bird painting for the uh, competition to right. be on the stamp, and he gets the the three stamp. So three three cent stamp, and um, you know he sort of said, you know, it's only the three stamp, the oh <laughs> the three cent stamp. Say it right, and uh, she's like, oh no, they they need the the little ones to to do that. So that that's one of my favourite. So we talk about the compassion that she yes, holds yeah, for, yeah. for for her husband. I mean, you said there's horror in there, there's comedy as well. I mean, what what? How do they do? It? I mean, a lot of the comedy comes from. Is it mocking? I don't say it's mocking the accents, but you, you enjoy the accent, the Minnesota mm. um, kind of vibe. But there's a lot of things with Jerry, Jerry Lundegaard. Uh, yeah, Jerry Lundegaard's like trying to fob off the insurance company yes. by like fudging the fax numbers and stuff like that. So no, no, it's all right, I'll send it through. I'll send it through. Don't, we, don't you worry about it. Um, but then even when Jerry's in the, he's in the wood chip, no, Steve Buscemi's being wood chipped mm. down. That's also a funny scene, but also quite horrific because you just see his like leg bouncing away mm. as the blood's kind of splashing out. It's, it's it's all about that dichotomy, though. It's all about this accent of somebody kind of fudging his wife's <laughs> kidnapping and just uh, oh my god, this can happen anyway. You know the real true story. This is this can happen anyway. Yeah, yeah. How they came up? Do you know how they came up with Minnesota no. as a location? Uh, well, I mean they're, they're from there. Uh, so that's uh, that's part of it, and I think they, they I think they did feel that it hadn't been seen on screen before. But I think as well, I think when they started conceiving of some of these plot ideas, they started to realize this is this is funnier and more interesting if it's said in one of these accents. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and nobody does it better than William H Macy. Yeah, uh, as the, yeah, the, as Jerry becomes increasingly sweaty and panicky, and as you, you know? were saying, like exactly, yeah. continuing to try and try and reassure people. And that really does bring. We 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 live in a in an age now where the Coen Brothers are sort of part of the cinematic landscape, but they were just like beginning to be real cinematic forces at this time. I think this was the the first of their films that really got a lot of notice at places like the Academy Awards. It was what their fifth, something like that. It might even been a little bit earlier because there was Blood Simple before this. What's and what I going to say? Raising Arizona. Arizona but... Look at those two films as calling cards. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in their in their different ways, I think they're both <coughs> brilliant. But when, if you're trying to define the Coen Brothers style, and you say so, they started with Blood Simple, mm. then they made Raising Arizona. I but, mean, those, sucker proxies in those there. look like two totally different styles of filmmaking. Uh, but I think this is what a lot of their later films do, like Barton Fink, like uh, in some ways uh, The Big Lebowski. It is combining those two elements. It's combining the the quirky characters, often quite big characterizations, big acting styles of Raising Arizona with the the crime thriller plot and the unflinching brutality that you see in Blood Simple. And, and unflinching brutality at No Country for Old Men. Oh, yes. How, how can the same people that wrote Hail Caesar and the director Hail Caesar be the guys behind No Country for Old Men. That makes, yes. that makes no sense, but that's how they, they have made some absolute hammers, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> Look at those. Inside Llewellyn and Davis as well. I couldn't mm. forget that's their, their fit. Um, um, Miller's Crossing, which I haven't seen for years either. I, this isn't the film we're talking about, and I know it'll be controversial. I think Big Lebowski's fine. Oh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being slightly disappointed about Big Lebowski, having loved Fargo so much, and having previously watched and enjoyed Barton Fink. Uh, I remember thinking, I think Big Lebowski grew on me a bit more with subsequent reviewings. But my, my first experience of it was a bit, oh, is that? It's a stoner comedy, though. Yeah. It works much better when you're stoned. <laughs> 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 so, I think Fargo, so this is something else. So something else I forgot about Fargo. And I, I don't think this works as well for repeat viewings. But I remembered how terrified I was. Oh, really? That she was going to be killed. Ah. How unsettling that was. And the Jerry's thing, wife or Frances McDormand? Frances McDormand. Ah. Frances, how terrified I was that uh, um, Marge Gunderson was going to get... Marge Gunderson? Marge was going to get killed. You, you were still watching it as a thriller by then. Yeah, and then the thing that made me realise how made me remember how scared I was was the fact that I kept saying to myself, well, I know she's going to be fine. I know she... It is deeply unsettling <laughs> the fact that you have seen these characters kill with such impunity, with so little regard, and there is a pregnant woman 
who is going to catch him or who is trying to catch him. Mm. You don't know. The way the film is made, it's not shot, because it's shot so unconventionally because it has this non-sequitur scene where she goes to this drink with her, an old... old uh, <laughs> school friend. School yeah. friend, yeah. That, that you don't see it as a standard... I certainly don't see it as a standard cop catches bad people film. I saw it as, yeah, okay, I viewed it as a thriller, but I didn't think it would go that way. I didn't think that she would end up, spoiler alert, she would end up winning. Um, you generally don't know. Uh, and that is, well, because the Coens have said that they don't like to plot a story out before they start writing the script, which is not the usual advice given. And I think that does have the benefit in their best films, and I'd certainly include Fargo in that list, that um, as the story does unfold, it does it in a very organic way and things don't feel forced and being having having to fish into nice neat patterns and if they do feel like following her as she goes to this meeting that has nothing to do with the main plot that's fine <laughs> yeah. but the the characters <coughs> continue to behave in ways that are true to themselves and then the plot does resolve but I think there are other films where for me at any rate they do run out of ideas about halfway through I think the worst example of that for me is probably the man who wasn't there which has got a cracking first half hour and then just sort of spirals. And yeah, I don't think I've seen it. I've seen it, but I think I've only seen it once and I don't really remember that much. No, I think towards the end they just go, oh, listen, you know what? Let's just have a flying saucer land. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, no spoilers for some of the TV series. But, uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I, something I will say, though, and I am going to criticise it because we have been heaping praise after praise on it. After watching the TV series... Yeah. I felt that it was much thinner than I remembered because... I said that the Coens really should have taken into account the television series that was going to be made 12 years later. Yes. <laughs> when they were writing and directing and the film. The story. That, that yeah. they inspired entirely from their innovative <laughs> filmmaking style. It's not necessarily a criticism. But well, on... you said, it's, it's not a long film, is it? It is quite lean. It uh, is. And in this day of sort of, you know, it's great bloated, bloated <laughs> two-hour-plus CGI fuckathon epics, that's no bad thing in my book. No, I'm not saying no. I'm not saying that it's thin in that. I'm. I tell you, the way I think it's thin is that I think it is too heartless. The characters are too evil, and and there is not the same heart. I find you get from a TV series. They don't write a lot of warm characters, it's true. I'm trying to think who is the I, kind of who warmest, is, nicest character. I don't think they're Cameron. evil, though. I just think they're stupid. <laughs> they're, not, they're not that clever to be kind of evil and sort of... I think Peter Stormare's character is evil. I think the other characters are stupid, but I think, I think they're <laughs> meant to be... Um, I think that Steve Buscemi, William H. Macy, just generally... The the bad even the even the step uh, the father in law they're meant to be stupid. I think that Peter Stamer's character is thrown in as a kind of these characters think they're playing one game. They think that the stakes are this level, and Peter Stamer just doesn't care. He doesn't care about the money. I mean, they're lying. What what is this for? Why did he even do it? Is it no? Peter Stamer doesn't care about the money. He doesn't care about anything. And he kill. ultimately kills him over. The car isn't it? it wants to yes, yeah, to yeah, buy yeah. the money of the car. When, by all accounts, he, should, he could have they could have walked away quite happily out of the out of the deal and never yeah. would have been and he wouldn't have been caught. Mm. And he doesn't. Why does he kill her? She was making. Why does he kill the wife? Yeah, she, she was just annoying. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You're the, annoying. I've got a gun. Doesn't he want this to go to end? Which I think is great. And talking about it, it's, you know, it, it is great. But I just, yeah, I do think firstly series of Fargo that I've seen there is a bit more of depth to the heart of it, mm. which I think highlights just how light a touch they apply. And this might be my failing as a viewer, as a millennial viewer who likes things hammered into me, who likes, you know, three hour fuckathons. Well, no, no different bit. <laughs> CG fuckathons. CGI. Well, even then sounds a little bit. Um, but the... Spoilers for the TV series, so you can cut this out if you want. But what I found interesting about, especially the first the first series, is the way that the Martin Freeman character, who's sort of the stand-in for the William H Macy character yeah. over whatever it is ten episodes, begins as this low-status, put-upon, cheerful, uh, but 
but loser character. Yeah. And then through the events of the series, he grows this sort of hard carapace and he doesn't learn how to be open and warm. On the contrary, he learns to care less. Yeah, yeah. And that's fascinating. That's a bit of character development you he, don't often see. He, he kind of actually turns into Peter Stormare's yeah. character towards the end. Yeah, but he's still. But unlike Peter Stormare, who just looks like a psychopath, he still knows how to wear the face of a <laughs> of, of Minnesota nice. Um, I think it's time to go into the scoring. We'll still discuss this over the scores. These are, these are our famous Flix Watcher scores. They're all out of five. If you'd like to go for a decimal place, you can. And we will start with you, Ned, with the recommendability score. Um, I would give it four, five. I'd give it five. You've got to see Fargo. A, it's a classic. B, it's exciting. C, it's original. I mean, it's got all the things. Even if you don't like it, you should just see it so you can talk about why you don't like it. But I can't imagine many people disliking it. So I'd give it five. Tom? Um, yeah, certainly high. I think if I'm allowed to just place, I think I'll probably go 4.5. It's very good. I would recommend it. Uh, is it. Is it a film we'll still be talking about in 20, 30, 40 years' time? I think it's got a lot of competition there. It's very good, but it's not maybe an absolute cast iron, perfect classic. Helen? I was going to say, just before we, uh, I give my score, a favourite Coen Brothers film? Oh, that's a good point. Um, I've, got a very, so I've got a very soft spot for The Hudsucker Proxy. Whether it's yeah. better than Fargo you know, for is, kids. is debatable. Yeah. But I just, I love that film. And actually, thinking about warm characters in Coen Brothers movies, Tim Robbins is so appealing mm. in that. And that's playing so many different games. It's doing fantasy and it's riffing on... Uh, scribble comedies of the 1940s and it's playing around with time and I, I, I adore that film but he's one that a lot of Coen Brothers film a lot of Coen Brothers fans like everything except the like a proxy this is good though you don't want everything to be straight down it's the, the first time they had a budget and a lot of people thought what are you doing with a budget go away <laughs> I'm just looking at the filmography. I think probably Fargo, but they've done there are films. Willis Crossing as well, I think is is just phenomenally um, good. I worked on Secret Cinema, <sighs> Miller's Crossing, so I, really? I watched that How quite a, a lot of that. Well, uh, four nights a week from um, March to sort of the end of May. What's the set design and production design of Miller's Crossing? I can't remember it. Is it? Does it, was it require at, people? It was at Hornsey Town Hall in uh, Crouch Crouch End. But what were people wearing and what was the set? Uh, so it was kind of prohibition-y, gangster-y okay. kind of stuff. It was brilliant. It was one of the best secret cinemas I've ever worked on. It was fantastic. I think I need to rewatch it. Um, looking at it, I remember loving Blood Simple. Absolutely loving it. But I haven't seen it in such a long time. I can't comment, really. I forgot that they directed a film which must be one of my least favourite films of all time. Burn After Reading? No, I love Burn After okay. Reading. I, I was going to say, actually, Burn After Reading is is a classic. No Country for Old Men, I think, suffers from worse, <coughs> worse than this, suffers from a lack of heart. But the, spoiler alert, the twist that the main character isn't the main character you think it is, <laughs> I still think about and think it's a brilliant um, thing. They have committed one appalling crime against cinema. What's that? Which is they attempted to, and I say attempted because it's a spectacular failure on every level, they attempted to remake The Lady Killers. Yeah, I was going mm -hmm. to say part of their cinematic canon is not just directing and producing, it's actually writing the scripts and handing it off. They didn't, they, I know, they directed it. Did they put that? Mm. Yeah. I thought it's, that was one of the ones they... No, it is, it's shockingly bad. Because Suburbicon is one of their, one of their screens. Yeah, and they did some, they did some Spies, script polish it? work on um, uh, Bridge of Spies as well. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, intolerable cruelty, which I know divides yeah. people, but I I remember watching it probably about four years ago, and just because I'm like, oh, it's Coen Brothers film. Why have I never watched this? And I should have watched Miller's Crossing instead. Do you guys know the story about the Garfield movie? No. So very quickly, there's a movie about Garfield, like a CGI Garfield, which yeah. is one of the worst movies anyone's with ever Jason made. Lee as the as Brian. I can't remember. Oh, what yeah, I do remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Murray that. does yeah. the voice of Garfield. A yeah. lot of people wondered why Bill Murray would do the voice of Garfield. And the reason is that the director of the film is one Joel Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, <laughs> no. who is no relation to either Joel or Ethan Cohen 
C-O-E-N, but that was the only reason why Bill Murray took the job. And it was only when he was like halfway through recording his lines, he realised his mistake. Oh, no. oh my God. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, <laughs> began to dawn on him. This wasn't quite the uh, intricately quirky comedy <laughs> that the Cohen brothers were known for. That would be a Garfield to watch, though, wouldn't yeah. it? I would watch that. I would watch the hell out of that. So what, what you're saying is you... Fargo. It's got to be Fargo. Helen. Um, back to the scores, five. Well, you said your favourite. Um, well, I, I definitely think Fargo is their best one. Um, do I, I can't, Fargo's very close. Um, I also like the most recent one with Oscar Isaacs in it. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think that's particularly one no, of their strongest ones. It's the whole season, isn't it? Well, one, one of the more recent ones. Um, I think definitely... Their '90s films are what I enjoy more. I've become least. It, I didn't really like Hail Caesar that much, and it, and I didn't really like Burn after reading that much either. So I think, I don't know, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> liking them less and less with each re, each release. But um, I liked Serious Man. That was the one of theirs. Yeah. That Michael, came out most Michael recently. Yeah, it's introduced me to him. Michael Stuhlberg yeah. exactly, who is just the most phenomenal See, actor. Is my is my MVP of last year? Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Was he in three Best Picture nominee films? So he was in, he was in uh, Coming By Your Name, and that scene at the end is. Yeah. I don't, I don't like Coming By Your Name as much as other people, but that scene is like yeah. still just like. In the Shape of Water. Shape of Water. Was he in one more as well? Um, no, but he was in um, season three of Fargo. Oh, is he? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes, he is. Yes, yes, yes. And it's phenomenal. It's fantastic in that. Okay, your. Yeah. So I would say I'll give it a four and a half. Maybe just a touch on the 4.4. 4. Um, maybe just because I think I, I really love um, Big Lebowski. I think it's high. I, I rate it higher than that. Oh. <laughs> I was like, no, it's, it's right. It's, it's everyone's opinion here. Yeah. And I haven't seen No Country for Men, but I really, really want to see it again. It really had a massive impact on me when I when I saw it. The first time seeing Have You About Them. Um, with a comb over. With a comb <laughs> Just ever. But yeah, I've never seen him with a comb over since. <sighs> Uh, so 4.4 because he's a completely different villain in, in um, Skyfall mm. he's not you know it's called acting he's a chat <laughs> but not everyone's as good at that he's <laughs> a good good acting um, uh, John Dorney on our podcast told a story about Jim Broadbent uh, who had the good fortune to be in two films of the same year Iris and Moulin Rouge giving two totally different performances. And uh, I can't remember, I think it was Jim Broadbent himself who said this. He said that the huge advantage of doing this in one year is people who don't know what they're talking about. So you do these two different things and they think, well, one of those must be acting. (laughs) (laughs) Jim Broadbent is amazing, actually. I love him, yeah. yeah. Especially in Moulin Rouge. Yeah. It's very peculiar before, that he's in Game of Thrones as such a throwaway character. It's it's just so random. It's just like, yeah, it's not, he's not, he doesn't have a name. He's Jim Broadbent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what happened. Um, repeat viewing score, Ned. Um, I would say, I, you know what? I don't like giving full marks to things, but well, I'd give it a five. You, you gave full marks in the previous round. Yeah, so, so, but, uh, so, so doing it twice is... But it's A, it's short. How many times have you seen it? I've seen it three times now. Yeah. I saw it once years and years ago. I saw it once a few weeks ago. And then I kind of slightly, I rewatched two and a half times. <laughs> I rewatched half of it just to, and went through getting time checks for when she turns up. And then I found myself watching it. You got yourself shawshanked. Yeah, it was, so I'd say five because it's, yeah, it's short enough that you don't go, you don't sit there through boring seat. It's, there isn't a wasted minute either, really. Mm. Um, and there's just so much to see in it. It's, yeah, it's weird for such a short, lean film, but there's so many layers to it. There's a the comedy, there's a the cinematography, there's just the the ambigu- ambiguity of it. So I'd say and there's still time for those scenes which end up nowhere. Yeah. Which is still actually one of my favourite scenes uh, when, when she meets her ex-schoolmate and he tries to sit next to her. I think everyone remembers it. I think everyone remembers that scene from the film, um, and it's because. It, and I don't think many people criticise it because you think if if that was if this was a two hour film and you think they could have cut it down to an hour and a half, that mm. would be one of those scenes that. But in the short film, you think this is actually fine. Yeah, uh, Tom, I think it does depend on its thriller plot 
I think the first time you watch it, it's going to have more of an impact for that reason. Right. You are going to be in suspense. You're not going to know what's going to happen next. But I agree with Ned. I think there is a lot of other character stuff going on there as well. I think it probably would repay repeated watching. So I think I'll probably go for four. Helen? Well, from a personal point of view, I mean, I've probably seen it between about 10 and 15 times, oh, wow. I think. I've, I've lost count how many times I've seen it. I hadn't seen is, it. This is quite late, is it? Because we, we've talked about films you see... Um, when you were a kid growing up and you just had like three or four VHS or it was always on TV. And this wasn't one of those films. It was kind of when DVDs kind of started to come out. So you perhaps had it. I either had it, it, I must have had it on video and then perhaps switched to um, DVD later on. But I've I've seen it loads. I haven't seen it probably in a good few years. Um, I really enjoyed watching it. And um, yeah, it is an hour and a half. So it zips by. I'd watch Mm. it again. So uh, I'm going to give it a five. I'm going to go, yeah, 4.8 here. It's like the 90 minutes time frame comes up time and time again in, in this. And I just saw a quiet place and that's 90 minutes. And I was just like, that's fine. Um, Do it by your precision. Yeah. yeah. 4.8. Yeah. We've, we've <laughs> had more extravagant. Precisely uh, calibrated. <laughs> we've had now, more extravagant scoring systems. I'm going to give it, for small screen, I'm going to give it, give it a score oh, of you, pi. You, well, we... You'll be the third person to have pie. <laughs> no, I'm not, not, not going to give it pie. I'm not going to give it pie. Uh, we'll go for, yeah, small screen score, uh, Ned. Um, mm, so I never saw it in the cinema. Yeah. I'd say, given, I'd say, oh, 3.8. <laughs> Do you want an explanation of the small screen score, Tom? So is it is the question, does this lose anything on the small screen? Yeah, yeah. kind of. Do you, yeah. feel, do, you, do you feel you missed out by not seeing yeah. it in the cinema? I, I think th- maybe 3.5, actually. I'd, because of the when it was filmed, I think that, and comparing it to the, again, TV programme, which I think holds up very well on the small screen, mm. I think the lack of, HD cameras and stuff like that to really get the, I don't know, make it the white that much whiter because it's only one color for me affects it, but not not a lot, but just, and I would say that I wouldn't say to someone, oh, you know, watch it on a big screen, but it's more compared to if I'd seen it in a cinema, yeah. I think I'd have been so engaged. Tom. Yeah, it's funny because so much of the cinematography is just white. You're, it's more about the the scale than picking out the details. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of what is happening in this movie is what's happening between the characters mm. rather than the spectacle. Uh, I think, yeah, I think I'll go four. I don't think it loses an awful lot. Obviously, better in the cinema as, as almost everything would be. Uh, and uh, Roger Deakins' cinematography does deserve to be seen. So, yeah. you know, it depends how small your small screen is. <laughs> Don't watch it on your phone. Or how close you are to the screen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Helen. Um, I'm going to give it a four. I've only ever watched it on the small screen and I've never really considered the difference between it. I guess it would have been nice just to have seen it at the cinema anyway, just for the pleasure of the cinema. Mm. Um, but I don't think it loses anything. And I think that maybe if you're coming to it, perhaps being familiar with the TV series more so than the film, then you're already watching kind of the small small screenness. And because it's kind of small town, mm. kind of small characters, it, it, it just seems to work quite well. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for a four as well. I think <coughs> the fact is Roger Deakins, it, it looks great, but as you say, I think the most, the, the majority of the driving of the story does come from the interplay within the characters and the, the scripting and everything. Um, I think if it was to come on Prince Charles, I'd go and see it. Um, but I don't think I've, I don't think particularly you need to see it. You don't feel that like you're missing. Pay more than three pound fifty to see no. it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping for another cinema day so I can go and see five yeah, films yeah. for a pound. Yeah, they stopped doing that after pounds. the second year. I think the second year wasn't as uh, successful. Maybe because I'd started an unfortunate trend <laughs> uh, and it wasn't repeated for a third year. Um, engagement score, Ned. So just the, the engagement scored, how engaging it, you don't you don't get distracted by your phone and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'd give it a you know what, I tell you what. I tell you what. Um I think I'll give it four point five. I think I'll give it four point five mm. because when I watched it the other day, 
I got distracted, not as much as I thought, and it's not very long as we keep saying. But, you know, a few times I was, I stuff, check my phone, bloody blah. But then when I was re-watching bits of it, yes, as I say, I've kind of seen it 2.5 times. I just got drawn in by it. Mm. I was just like, oh, maybe I'll just carry on watching VC. Oh, I forgot how good this scene was. Mm. Oh, I forgot this. So I'd say I'd give it a good 4.5 for that. Tom? I think this this is a film that could split people. If I imagine somebody coming to this film, maybe a younger person uh, who <laughs> hadn't seen it before, I think there are things that could be off-putting. I think the accents could be off-putting. I think the fact there's nobody nice in the movie could be off-putting. I think the fact that it does uh, have this slightly odd structure, it does keep cutting away, you know, once or twice cuts away to things that don't really seem to be relevant to anything else. That wasn't my experience of watching it for the first time. When I watched it for the first time, I was glued to my seat. I mm. couldn't take my eyes off the screen. Uh, so I think, I think for me, 4.5, but I would perfectly understand someone watching it for the first time going, no, mate, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I, I get what you say about that because there's a lot of very mundane moments in it and that's part of the brilliance but I guess maybe for if you're used to a CGI three hour <laughs> fuck off then you might not be uh, you might not get down with this um, <laughs> I mean it's, it's weird because I, I actually thought when um, I was like oh I've got to watch Fargo again I thought I would be kind of less engaged because I'd seen it so many times but I was really engaged in it. I was like, oh, I've kind of forgotten this a little bit. I knew this bit was coming. Mm. This bit is really, really good. So I'm, I'm going to give it five. I'm going to give it a 4.3. I think the first time I watched it, I think less than you guys, I was, I just didn't get it. Mm. Um, and it's only with subsequent views. I'm like, oh shit, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, Again, seeing it with an audience helps. Yeah, this, this is part of the cinematic thing. Yeah. Um, and I think I actually, I actually, I think I prefer the TV show how they've done the TV series over. The really? Film. Yeah, definitely. Really? So I'd, I'd like the way the story pans out. Like yeah, in each different. You just get more things. of it. It's yeah. a great, it's a great thing, and you get more of it. Yeah, that's my opinion. I'm, that's that's why I love. TV um, but like you said, you saw Helen. I've, each time I watch, I'm like, I forget something's going to happen. I forget how she runs out of the car with a bag over her head, which is both hilarious and tragic. Yeah. Um, I forgot how Steve Buscemi meets his end again hilarious and tragic um, and then remember some other things so yeah there's there's lots of things to you're waiting for but then there's other things you you forget come along yeah um, yeah 4.3 and that gives us oh have we got a new winner no oh, uh, so 4, close 4.47 that must um, be second though what, what's what's the winner it, at the moment it's what we do in the shadows Oh, it's very high. Which a film I didn't enjoy. Oh, really? Yeah, I well, didn't enjoy good it. job you weren't in the booth then. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I think Hunt for the World of People is high up there as well. Yeah, um, this is pretty high. Yeah. Four point four six. Hunt for the World of People. Oh, World of People is four point one. So yeah, this is higher. Uh, if you go into a website, guys, when this comes out, you can see the rankings on the overall top scoring page and you can find out exactly where they are. It is a shame we're not doing Jupiter Ascending because <laughs> that would... <laughs> so we reached out to the guys on Twitter. Um, tell us, told us that we said... Um, also, again, we reached out to the guys on Twitter and we said, we're reviewing Fargo. Have you seen it? We'd love to hear your thoughts and include them in our podcast, Flix Watcher. If you've seen it, give us your five-star review, your five-star rating, a short review and to retweet and all that malarkey. Um, so we got quite a decent response from this one um, Tom do you want to take the, the top response here what were they thinking uh, at WWT podcast uh, uh, says love everything about this movie Coen Brothers classic five stars five stars from them um, we didn't even speak about Francis McDormand um, no. winning an Oscar for an for quite a relatively short performance and a very offbeat performance I think I mean you you it's not a biopic. That she comes on later in the film, but she's once she's in it, she's she's oh, in yeah. it for, yeah. front and centre. And people have won for less screen time, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Judy Dench won for kind of uh, three minutes at the cough or something. Best supporting yeah. actor. This has actually just come up on our podcast because one of the contenders for best actor, mm. shortest screen time, is Anthony Hopkins in, in Silence, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. But actually, I think the record is David Niven uh, in a film called Separate Tables. 
<laughs> well, we had very we much an ensemble, and he's on screen for about twenty-two minutes. Had network and best supporting actress for that was incredibly short. Yeah, she's she's like on the screen minutes. for like three minutes. Across like, and that means, was a winner. Uh, and the the other th- thing I remember is I think the absolute record for a for an acting nomination mm. is Hermione Baddeley in Room at the Top, who's on screen for just over two minutes. <laughs> um, but didn't win. Ned, do you want to take the next one down? Um, Please, guys, skip to the end. Skip to the end. Uh, oh, skip to the end at SWTE podcast. Um, weirdly, it's a re- rewatch on our latest episode, Five Stars All Day Long, a true masterpiece of a movie. We, yeah. Or Death by Film. Should I do Death by Film pod? Uh, set five stars. Should have been Deacon's first Oscar. Uh, Helen, Jim Bob Squarepants. <laughs> <laughs> but not his at title. So that's Jim Bob Squarepants at Vintage GT. Um, a superb movie with infinite rewatchability. Is that a word? Well, yep. we say yes. <laughs> I love it. Always have ever. Sorry. I always have since I first saw it. Five stars. Yeah. Um. And last one, if you want to watch this podcast, IW, I can't be all bothered. <laughs> this is my favorite. This is my favorite Cobra Brothers film. One million stars. Not that's, you know, blokes right. of, out, out, out of how many stars? Yeah, exactly. Francis, uh, McDormand is clearly the best. Always love Craig. I didn't say love. It's just, <laughs> it's just a hype. Just added the love. You, you love Craig. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they're giving it between four and five, well, five stars. Everyone there gets yeah. five stars. Um, I think it does bring up those yeah. feelings in people. Yeah. I think it's it's a film that, because it's, it's quite weird, people are very happy raving about it. Yeah. Um, Whereas, like, I think, Tom, you, you raised the point there, if you're a bit younger and you perhaps don't understand, mm. you maybe don't know what you're getting into or you're not that kind of mindset, then this is but, just a, an odd, yeah, a jarring film. You don't confuse it for any other film, do you? Mm. You don't think, oh, was that? No, no, that's Fargo. No, you know that that was Fargo. It's really, really clear in what it's trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, guys, can you just give, let people know where they can find you online on Twitter or websites and stuff like that? Yeah, so I'm at Tom Solinsky, and you can also follow uh, at Best Pick Pod to find out about our Oscar journey. That's Best Pick Podcast at Best Pick Pod or bestpickpod.com on the website. Um, you can get me at Ned Sedgwick on Twitter. Um, and you can download BBC's Grown Up Land on iTunes or the BBC website. And you can download Global Pillage on iTunes and Her Majesty's Internet. Um, Does she own it? I knew she owned it. Well, yep. I'll tell you where you can't get Global Pillage is Alexa. And she doesn't even recognise it. She was like, sorry, mm. we don't have Global Pillage. And I'm like, that's not what I said. Let's <laughs> watch on Alexa. I didn't ask that. What? <laughs> How dare you? Clear where your loyalties yeah. truly lie. <laughs> I'll ask her tonight. Uh, I think it may bombshell. have something to do with our podcast host, which is different for Guilty Feminist and Global Pillage. So I will investigate that. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, guys. For thank you. Coming. Yeah, and uh, we'll see you next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Cheers, guys. You were just listening to the latest episode of Flix Watcher Podcast. Thank you to Brendan Russell for his sublime editing skills. Mighty people for the tunes you can hear right now. Please do come to iTunes and find us, like, subscribe, share with your friends. Find us on Twitter at FlixWatcherPod and on our website, FlixWatcher.tv. star review follow us at flixwatcher pod on twitter big shout out to our editor brendan russell for all his awesome editing skills and thanks as always to the mighty people for their tunes